Can you think of a time when you were so happy about something that you just couldn't contain yourself? Maybe it was seeing a loved one after being separated for so long during all those COVID restrictions and maybe you just ran, you just threw your arms around them. Maybe it was hearing some especially good news, either good news for you personally or for somebody who you care deeply about. Maybe you laughed or exclaimed so loudly that the people around you started to wonder what you were on, but you just didn't care. Now, maybe it was watching the England women's football team, the Lionesses four weeks ago, win the European Cup, you know, winning the, for England the first international final in 56 years. It was just amazing. I imagine some of you were singing at the top of your voices like the 2,800 of us at DTI were when the game ended. This is a clip I took. We all express emotions differently. You know, some of us are relatively reserved. We might save these sort of outbursts for just the occasional circumstances. Others of us maybe are more demonstrative. Whatever our personalities, it's fair to say that joy has a way of naturally finding itself some kind of external expression. This week, our final talk in the Summer Through the Psalms series we've been going through uh, over the last four weeks, we've looked at different types of psalms, including psalms of wisdom, confession, lament, and petition. And today, we are finishing with a psalm of praise, Psalm 100. If you've missed any of the talks in the series, or you'd like to go deeper into the psalms, then you can visit the resource page that accompanies the series. It's at trentv.org forward slash psalms. So I'm going to invite Laura just to come and read Psalm 100 to us. And as she does, you'll hear that it paints a picture of this kind of exuberant celebration that I'm talking about. It is titled a psalm for giving grateful praise. It's the only one of the 150 psalms titled that way. And it's likely that 3,000 years ago when this was written, the psalm would have been read aloud during a service, a worship service at the temple in Jerusalem as worshippers brought their thanksgiving sacrifices to be burnt on the altar. It's just five verses long, but it almost bursts off the page with overflowing joy and passion. So, Laura, come and read it to us. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. the first couple of verses. In fact, the very first word, we get a picture of the kind of praise the psalm is describing. It says this, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Shout, this is a 
passionate, this is passionate worship, people shouting to the Lord. You know, worship that's not really very reserved, it's full of joy and celebration. It continues there, worship the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful songs. You know, some people think of church, people who don't go to church, maybe they think, what do they picture like? Church is like a pretty dreary place, you know, pretty somber, and they probably think of God maybe as a bit serious, uh, no real sense of fun, you know, everything which is fun seems to be prohibited, and everything which isn't seems to be compulsory, that's the way some people would look at the Christian church, but it's so not the case, you know, if you just have a look at creation, I don't think a somber, serious God would have created the eye eye. Or the red-lipped batfish. The putu. Or the blobfish. No way. But it's real. God has a wonderful sense of humor and displays a glimpse of his joy in his creativity. And the idea, you know, of shouting for joy in church may be totally foreign from your expectation of what a, would happen in a church. But, you know, especially if you're new here, you're a visitor here, far away from what you might expect. But one of the values that we have here in the vineyard movement is that of passion. We want to capture something of what this psalm is talking about. 37 years ago, there was a vineyard conference. So this is before there were ever vineyard churches in this country. But the founder of the vineyard movement, John Wimber, came over from California. There was a conference uh, at the Wembley Arena. Uh, and there was a time of worship in that conference, and people danced. I mean, it just took off, and it was such a time of celebration. People were dancing. Now, I can't dance to save my life, but as restrained naturally I would be in that arena, in that area, I danced. And somewhere out of nowhere, apparently, came this very rapid kind of footwork, a bit like Chuck Berry, like a fast version of Elvis Presley. And you can laugh, and it's okay. And you would have laughed had you been there to watch me. <laughs> such joy, such love that I was feeling, and in the environment of corporate worship, just kind of overflowing, couldn't be contained. Now, I had a, a beautiful pair of leather shoes on, and during this fancy footwork, the leather tore. This was not just the sole coming apart from the upper. This was the leather tore. And so I looked down and thought, I've killed my shoes. They're very precious to me, but... Hey-ho, it's a sacrifice of praise, and just carried on. And I wasn't bothered in that moment. Who saw me? How silly I probably looked, because it was before God. And the worship leader noticed Debbie was dancing exuberantly. She was a dancer at the time, and he beckoned her up on the stage, where she then twirled and jumped and leapt and, and danced, which kind of things took off even more at that point. And this American team, they couldn't believe it, because they thought like, going to England, which is where everybody's like a bit, you know, reserved, aren't they? A bit like stiff upper lip and all this sort of thing. They had never seen a worship time get quite so out of control. And I was delighted that four weeks ago, those young people at DTI, they were not only passionately singing for the England's uh, women's football team, but showing that same exuberance in worship. So I just took another little clip during a worship time. This is during a song called This Is Living Now.
God, your freedom is an open door. You are everything I want and more. And really, this is the kind of worship that the psalm here is describing. It's full of joy. It's full of gladness. But why? Why would these young people behave this way? Why would I have been so happy to sacrifice a very nice pair of leather shoes? And why would the writer of this psalm be telling us to shout for joy? We could spend many Sundays talking about the why, but Psalm 100 touches on a couple of things. So first of all, it says here in verse 3, know that the Lord is God. The psalm is reminding us that God is worthy to be worshipped because he is the ultimate king. He is God. He is the sustainer of the entire universe. One of the biblical words which can be translated worship in the English language in our Bibles can be translated worth-ship. Worth-ship. So in worshipping someone, we are expressing our appreciation of their worth or their worthiness to be worshipped. And in fact, the word used in verse 1 there for shout refers to the kind of joyful noise, the sort of fanfare that was used to welcome a king. So not only is the praise that this psalm is describing passionate, it's joyful, but it also describes the passionate adoration of a king, the king. He is our king, and verse 3 goes on, it is he who made us. He is the creator. He created us. You know, despite what some atheists might think, we are not the result of some cosmic accident. This is not an evolutionary, like, oh, it's amazing how things just continue to get better and humanity just came out of some accidental, you know, result of the Big Bang. No, he is the creator. He's the creator of every single person, whether you believe that or not, that's a fact. And he's the creator of everything we have. In James 1, verse 17, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So everything we have comes from him. Everything. The food we eat, the clothes we are wearing, our relationships, our talents, our gifts, the very air we breathe, everything comes from God. And so wonder the, no wonder the psalmist says, give thanks to him and praise his name. Give thanks to God for everything you have because it all comes from him. And verse 4 says this, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. So what kind of gates, what kind of courts are we talking about? What is he referring to here? Well, the psalmist is describing the idea of going somewhere to worship God together, which would have been very familiar. The original hearers knew exactly what those courts and those gates were about. The temple in Jerusalem had courts and gates. So David, King David, he was the king about a thousand years BC, so 3,000 years ago. He wrote many of the Psalms, and he wanted to build a temple for the people of Israel to worship God. In the event, it was his son who got to do that, oversee the building project. And you can read a description in 1 Kings chapter 6, if you want a more full description, 2 Chronicles chapters 3 through 6. And everything about the temple was designed to express something of God's majesty. It's like, who, who could build a temple for the creator of the universe? Like, how, what's this going to look like? And so Solomon just went about building the best that was possible for humankind to build. It must have been an absolutely magnificent site. It took, according to the scriptures, 180,000 men, seven and a half years to build. 
It was set in this huge outer court with outer rooms, storerooms, and all sorts of things. Then there was an inner court. And then in the center was what was known as the most holy place where God's presence was especially powerful. And the whole interior of the temple was lined with rare woods and then they were carved with all sorts of cherubim and palm trees and flowers and so on. And then it was all overlaid with gold. Even the hinges and many of the nails were made of gold. It tells us that each nail weighed one and a quarter pounds. So in today's money, that would be worth over 20,000 quid per nail. And just the staggering amounts, when you read through this, look at the footnotes, a staggering amount of gold. It was, if it was a single lump, I understand it would be about 18 feet across. So we're talking about between me and probably the second row there. That size cube, if you brought that into this building, set it down, it would first of all crush the concrete floor many feet into the ground because it would weigh about 3,500 tons. King David's contribution of gold from the nation's fortune in today's money would be worth in excess of 150 billion pounds. So, in 1883, biblical scholar Thomas Newbery created a model of what the temple might have looked like based on the descriptions that we have there in those two books. And the New York Met Museum has used their modern technology to show inside that model. Every surface was covered in polished gold. The ceiling beams, the doors, the walls, even the floors were covered in gold. And it wasn't like just gold leaf that was used historically to cover, say, an armchair in a palace. We're talking about a thick layer of gold which would stand millions of people walking over it over time. There's no natural light in there, just the flames coming from these huge multi-headed oil lamps. But with all that gold, imagine, polished to a mirror finish, the flames from the flickering lamps would have been magnified, creating the most incredible atmosphere. Separating the most holy place from the rest of the temple were the gold inner doors. And only one person, the high priest, got to go into that space just once a year. And Solomon meant it when he said, the temple I'm going to build for the Lord will be great. It was not only designed to be a place where people went to worship, the building itself was intended to be worship, to express the majesty of God. The giving of the materials was worship. The building of it was worship. The existence of it was worship. Everything that went on in it was worship. Now, I think we can safely say that our building isn't very much like the, Solomon, the, you know, the temple that Solomon built. It is important to us maybe that this looks kind of pleasant, that it's comfortable, it's functional. But when we built it, we deliberately didn't line it with gold. And that wasn't just because of the expense. To be fair, it was a factor, but it wasn't just because of that. But in the, the new reality through what Jesus accomplished a thousand years after that temple was built, we don't need a temple. We, the followers of Jesus, are the temple. We are the meeting place, the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit, whatever building we happen to be in. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Now, of course, it's totally appropriate to have a pleasant environment in which to meet uh, and the Lord, but the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. That's where he is present, in the praises of his people. We don't need a gold-lined palace in order to meet with God. He's with us 
in this building. But the disadvantage of meeting in here, in what is basically the most simple form of tin shed warehouse, as opposed to that temple that Solomon built, is that there is a danger that we can take meeting with God kind of for granted. We can take coming together into his presence more lightly than we ought. We can perhaps sometimes arrive late for worship and kind of traipse in talking with our friends. We are thinking about what we're going to have for lunch, even as we're singing, you know, wondering, is the band going to play my favorite song and so on. But just imagine with me, would you, walking into that temple. Imagine what will go through your mind. You're like, my goodness, we're in God's house. We're in the presence of Almighty God. In fact, through those gold doors, He is even more uh, powerfully and strongly present. Do you see how the environment, all the flickering flames off that mirror finished gold wall, floors, ceilings, how, you know, it would really draw us into taking seriously the moment we were in, the worship of God. And on one level, it's quite appropriate that we don't have those things. On another level, we risk losing out to pointers to God's majesty. And we can be so easily distracted by our thoughts and our attention drifting during worship. Am I the only person that's ever happened to, you know? Uh, probably not. I bet there's at least one others of you who've been thinking about the meeting you've got tomorrow or what you're having for lunch or whatever. And the, the psalmist is reminding us that God, our King and our Creator, deserves our full attention. We may not have a gold-lined building to worship in, but we can give them everything we have in worship. Now, the actual expression of passion for God will vary greatly from person to person. And just to say, God loves it all. We want everyone to have the freedom to worship in the way that they feel comfortable doing. Some of you might want to sing passionately, dance, and jump with your arms in the air. And there's more space, to be fair, to do that at the back than in the confines of your row. Now, that's not my natural way of worshipping. But at DTI, joining in with what many young people were doing, I did all of those things. Some of you might, when I'm on the kids' team, I do all of those things, you know, in big, when they're jumping up and down and all that, you know. But sometimes you might just want to feel like you want to kneel down. Sometimes you might even want to lie on the floor. There's probably not room. You might want to go to the back and do that. But um, if others engaging deeply, maybe not singing loudly or whatever, but actually closing your eyes and simply standing still and listening to the words that are being sung by others. And perhaps you're not ready to do what those wild people do. Some of you think, what was that about? You know, people raising their hands. You're not ready to do that. That's too big. But maybe even, you know, you're, you're more like this, but maybe just really stretch yourself and think, could I maybe just turn my palms a little bit like that? You know, that could be like the most expressive thing you'd ever done. It really, you know, all of it, all of it is appropriate. God doesn't expect us, any of us, to worship in some sort of prescribed way. He loves our cultural differences, our personality differences. After all, he made each of us. He loves us. He loves our uniqueness. And so I just want to say, please feel free to worship here in a way that you feel comfortable. As long as you're not excessively distracting the person next to you or stepping on, your, stepping on their toes in your exuberance, just go for it. 
you know, if culturally your expression is far more effusive than mine, go for it. Don't be held back just because it's a predominantly white English church. I've got to behave in a certain way. Go for it. Worship the Lord in a way uh, that you would love to do. And so God invites us to engage with him in our worship, to quietly or loudly, wholeheartedly express our love and our adoration. So Psalm 100 reminds us to offer passionate praise to God, our King and Creator. But it also says in verse 3, we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And that in verse 5, his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. As we think about the majesty of God, which Solomon tried to reflect in the building of the temple, it might be easy to think of God as somehow really, really distant, as unreachable, to focus on what is known as God's transcendence, his supernatural beyond our wildest imagination, beyond our comprehension, awesomeness. And of course, we are to approach God, who is that, with reverence. But this psalm also tells us that he loves us and he cares for us like a shepherd cares for each individual sheep. It also emphasizes what is known as his imminence, that is his intimate presence with us. So he's not just our creator, he's also actually so close. He cares deeply about the details of every one of our lives. We can know him intimately. He's attentive to us as a shepherd would be to the individual sheep within the flock they're entrusted with. And, it, you know, it may be that for some of you today, your current circumstances are really hard. <clears throat> the thought of worshipping joyfully, shouting for joy, feels very strained for you because you are feeling in a place of lament. You're in a place of pain. In fact, even being in a large room of people who are being expressive in their worship... It feels hard for you. Now, there is, of course, a place for mourning and grieving and lamenting, and each of us is invited to come to the Lord where we're at, authentically where we're at. And as you've hopefully picked up, if you've been with us through this uh, summer in the Psalms, the Psalms encourage us to be absolutely real with God, to not pretend to be in any way in a happy place when we're not. There's no expectation you'd turn up here and be, oh, happy clappy, I've got to like, behave like I'm in a great... If you're in a horrible place, just be in the presence of God and just be silent and just you know, let the tears roll down your face as you listen to other people singing. That's totally, totally appropriate. Wherever we're at personally, we can take comfort in that thought in verse 5 that his love for each of us endures forever. That never changes is always constant, always attentive, and his faithfulness to us is unwavering. Doesn't matter what's going on, his faithfulness is continual. Now going back to the temple for a moment, the temple consisted of several courts in the middle, as I said, was the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was housed, uh, where the Ten Commandments and some other stuff was in that box. And um, it's where God's presence was thought to most intensely reside. In that walk through the model there, we just saw we didn't see the gates, uh, which the biblical accounts say closed off that space. And the high priest was the only one who could go through those gates and only once a year with the blood of a sacrificed animal on the day of atonement to request forgiveness for the sins of the nation. Later temples in Jerusalem, because that one got destroyed, had a curtain 
which separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple. And the historians suggest that that curtain was a few inches thick. It was the most incredibly heavy piece of woven material. And the curtain communicated something very strongly. God is so holy and you're not. There is an impenetrable separation between God and his people, between God's presence and the people of God. At the moment that Jesus died on the cross, the Bible tells us the temple curtain tore. It wasn't done by man. It tore from top to bottom. Uh, and suddenly there was no separation between God and uh, humanity because of what he accomplished on the, cross, on the cross. Paying the penalty for our sin, that barrier was removed for all time. The presence of God was now accessible to anyone who wanted to enter in. So God's presence is no longer restricted to a single room entered once a year by one person. It, as we come into this warehouse, it's amazing, it's astonishing, but we can corporately experience the closeness of the Lord in an incredible way. One of the Greek words in which the New Testament was written originally in the Bible, which is translated with the English word worship, is proskuneo. And it appears apparently 57 times in the New Testament. And it literally means to come towards, to kiss. The pros in proskunio means to kiss. And this word for worship sums up what we're leaning into as we worship. We're drawing near to God in intimacy. We're recognizing him as king, but we're drawing close enough to kiss him. It's an amazing thing. There's the awesomeness of God, and yet there's this incredibly intimate moment that we are invited into have with him. We're invited into this extraordinary experience of both the transcendence and the imminence of God at the same time. Now, worship is all about blessing God. Some Christians have, over time, got confused about that, and perhaps they've come and said, you know, how was the worship for you this morning? Well, I'm not sure about it. Not my favorite worship leader, and not really keen on the second song. And you know, like, Were you blessed by the worship? Actually, who cares? Who gives a rip whether you were blessed by the worship? Because worship is to bless one person, okay? And that is God. Was he blessed? How was worship for God this morning? But, as is so often the case, like, give and you will receive. You know, give and it'll be given to you and so on. It, it, same thing. The amazing thing is that we are often blessed as we worship. James, in his letter, in James 4, 8, says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And it's so often that is our experience, isn't it? When we gather to worship, we often sense the presence of God in, in a tangible way. I've, I've talked with so many of you over time who've come here, maybe the first time, uh, you've come and you say things like, I just, I just cried throughout the singing. I don't even know why. I just cried. I couldn't stop myself. And I've been coming for months and I keep doing that. And um, as I mentioned in a recent talk, that happened for me. I vividly recall 35 years ago when we were uh, training, we were interning at the vineyard in Anaheim in California, that I just wept throughout the worship for multiple weeks. Just, the, just something about the intimate in the presence of God and the Lord just touching my heart. And clearly there was some stuff to be healed. There was pain there and so on. But it was an amazing experience. And I hope many of you have had that experience. Um, it's a beautiful thing to connect so intimately with the Lord. So there's an extraordinary experience of intimacy available to us in gathered worship, even in the midst of lots of other people.
Brian, who was new to faith, described his early experiences here of worship, saying, when the singing started, it was like Jesus walked into the room. Psalm 100 paints this picture of passionate, exuberant praise and thanksgiving. It's full of joy, it's full of gladness, and of intimate relationship with the Good Shepherd. We worship not only the ultimate sovereign of the universe, the creator of all things, but we belong to him, we can know him intimately. We are deeply, deeply loved by the one who is always there, who is always faithful. We're, and we're able to draw near to him, and he draws near to us. And it's worth considering just personally for a moment, how much does my worship reflect what is described in this psalm? When we come to church on a Sunday or we go to a small group, are we expecting to enter God's presence together, to meet with our creator, our loving shepherd, with an awareness of how utterly amazing that privilege and that invitation is? Or are we thinking about whether we like this particular song, are we distracted by what we've got going on this week, our thoughts wandering? And so as we just now, we're going to move into, well, we're going to sing one last song, then we're going to um, have a time of ministry. I just would invite you to engage with the words as Laura comes back to read this. And just consider, as you come up, Laura, just listen to the words again. What might God might be highlighting to you personally through the words of this psalm? Laura. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations.